Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice, committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movements. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. You're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio, um, and on the line um, we have a special guest who's helping us out today, um, Felix. Um, yeah, Felix. He's actually in this studio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not, not online, I'm right here. He's yeah, right here. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Give credit. <laughs> um, and then we have myself and Megan as your regular presenters. Um, I guess before um, we go on to kind of headline news, in fact, there's quite a lot happening right now, um, a big kind of news story that we're going to start off with. Um, but first, I'd like to acknowledge um, that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the Wandry land of the Kulin Nation. Um, we would like to pay our respect um, to Elders past and present and that this always was, um, always will be Aboriginal land. And I guess before we go on to the sort of major thing that happened last night, um, while we make that acknowledgement, I'd like to um, sort of um, make um, mention that the um, the fight for the secretaries at Jabberon um, Embassy is still ongoing and still encourage you to visit the camp if you can. There's also going to be a protest on Tuesday the following Tuesday after the next one, which is, I think, the 8th or the 9th. Um, we'll, make, we'll talk a bit more about that protest, but it's going to be at um, 7, um, the Tuesday after the next, um, which is uh, at 8.30am outside Parliament House. So for those who can't make the camp, I highly encourage you to make that protest. And I guess some recent developments that have happened on that front, um, probably listeners were probably aware that last, in the past week, um, there was a suspected art, tragic kind of arson um, uh, act of arson on one of the one of the um, sacred trees where someone had apparently had um, lit it on fire. It is thankfully still intact, um, but it's definitely shaken up um, a lot of the a lot of the activists on the camp. Um, and I guess one on the more positive note, there has been a lot more mainstream coverage um, that has been supportive of the campaign um, than there has in the past. So that could be there could be potential. Some, potentially a lot more pressure on the state government than there has been in the past. So that could, that kind of reinforces the importance of people getting down there, mobilising and defence. So definitely highly encourage you to visit if you can and because all the, um, as much solidarity, there's as much solidarity as needed as, as possible. Now I guess I want to start off, I'll get Megan to sort of, um, talk about the recent thing that happened yesterday, I mean last night. Yeah, so it's actually really recent. So um, Priya, Nardis and their children are a Tamil family that has been held in detention, I believe, since 2018. Um, last night um, they were told that they were going to be deported that night um, and uh, amongst a lot of confusion because um, there is basically a culture of secrecy around these things. Uh, the people who have been deported don't get told anything. Their supporters don't get told anything. 
anything. So through our networks, we learned that they were going to be imminently deported last night. Um, and it was the whole thing was unfolding um, before our eyes. There was about 50 people in um, who basically headed to Melbourne Airport as soon as they found out uh, what was going on to try and stop the deportation. And um, I believe that um, Priya and Nardis and their kids uh, went to, they actually got onto a plane. They went from um, Melbourne to Darwin. Uh, now, apparently, as the plane landed and they were uh, set down on the tarmac, uh, they weren't told what was happening until basically they were told they were going to go to accommodation there. Uh, because there was an interim injunction against their deportation that had been um, passed last minute. So last minute, um, they were the, the deportation was stopped. Unfortunately, uh, the interim injunction only lasts until 12 noon today. Apparently, they have a hearing here at the Circuit Court in Melbourne at 10am this morning. There is a vigil at Flagstaff Gardens, corner of William and Latrobe Street, um, that's happening this morning. I'm going to be heading down there after the radio show. Um, I do encourage you to get down there. Um, this is an absolutely critical time uh, for this Tamil family. They are, let's make it clear, abundantly clear, they are being deported back to danger. They are a Tamil minority. Uh, they fled because of the fact that they were in danger. And their children, who are young, have known, all they've ever known is Australia. Um, and uh, it is an absolutely critical time to put pressure on the government to stop this deportation. Uh, their, their Queensland town of Belilia, uh, Belilla, I think, um, the people there want them back. They were, a con- they were contributing um, members of this town, of this society, of this community, and um, they are very much wanted uh, back in their community. Uh, and as I said, if they get deported, they will be deported back to danger, and that's an absolutely heartless thing that the government has done. There's also been reports that um, when they were uh, uh, basically uh, apprehended to be deported that there was some uh, quite uh, some aggression um, from the people who were picking them up, uh, from Priya herself who's had now had problems with her shoulder. Um, so, yeah, it looks like there was some aggression um, as they were being uh, detained. We will have reports, hopefully, about some um, new information. But just to repeat, there is uh, a vigil at 9.30 this morning at the Flagstaff Gardens uh, in the Melbourne CBD, corner of Latrobe and William Street. Please do get down there. Uh, this family needs all the love and all the support, and we need to pressure the government to stop their deportation to danger. Yeah, and I think it's more, um, I guess, example of that, you know, I think an out of how outright racist our detention system yeah. is and our, how we treat refugees. And it's you can almost kind of see it like, um, you know, since the election of um, of the re-election of the Morrison government, I can definitely feel that, you know, well, there's less sympathy. Um, well, it's more that Peter Dutton, um, the way he probably sees it is, is, you know, we need to do this because we need to show an example that, you know, people can't come. down, border security. Yeah. Yeah, um, and, and it's, it seemed like the tide was turning a little bit before the election and now yeah. everyone in power has basically decided, oh, that, that was false. The tide isn't turning. Uh, uh, yeah, they, I think they, have, they feel they have a mandate yeah. now to 
be basically heartless. Yep. Um, I know that there were, um, one of um, Priya and Nada's young kids um, had a birthday in detention, and apparently she wasn't allowed a cake. Yeah, I, I mean, remember that's that. How bad it's... we've gotten I, that we can't actually allow some young kid in detention to to have a birthday cake. For it humanizes them. Yeah. Oh no, we can't. We heaven forfend. We can't humanize refugees who are you know fleeing to Australia for their safety. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm, I'm interested in the fact that, you know, like we were talking about this before the show, that the guards just showed such hostility to them that, you know, the, the guards, they're not impartial, um, you know, they're not... No, they're not even doing their job. It's, yeah. there, there's aggression, there's, there's outright it's, aggression. That's right, you know, they're, they're sort of partisan all the way, all the way down to the, to, to the, the grunt at, yeah. the, at the bottom. I mean, I, I know that... Um, when I found out about this last night, um, we we did actually want to go down there, but unfortunately my um, my partner, who's a truck driver, has to get up ridiculously early, and I didn't want him putting himself into in danger by you know driving around a huge truck dead tired in the morning. Um, but I I felt gutted. I I was actually in tears. I felt like part of the Australian heart has disappeared and I can't imagine what the Tamil community feels right now. You know, um, there are other Tamil um, asylum seekers whose position here in Australia is precarious. I mean, what are they thinking? Um, you know, already this, this community is traumatised by, you know, fleeing from, from danger. Um, you know, now it's even more precarious. I, I can't imagine how they feel and I just... I feel like we've lost a part of our heart here in Australia and I think we need to keep fighting. Even though we are all just gutted by this, we just need to keep fighting. Yeah. Mm. All right. Um, well, I might just go play a quick few announcements then we might um, cover one small um, article before we move on to our first interview. We actually quite quite a, a pretty packed program this week. Um, we're going to be having an interview with... Um, Hiseli. 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 Hiseli, um, who's a member of the Brazilian community, who organised a protest um, around the Amazon forest um, on Sunday. And so we're going to be talking to her in more detail about, you know, what, what's happening with the Amazon fires. In fact, she has, interesting enough, some new, from talking to her over the phone, she has some new information to illuminate about those recent Amazon rainforest fires in Brazil. Um, I'm going to be playing parts or maybe the whole speech, just depending on how much time we got, of from Karen Fletcher, who spoke at a recent Build Communities Not Prisons, um, Alternatives to Incarceration um, public forum. Um, and then at 8.10am, I'm going to be, we're going to be talking to this woman called Samia, who um, recently wrote a um, a book and is actually launching a book, which is sort of about, um, talks kind of about um, sort of a more, a bit of an academic topic around um, the use of language and decolonisation and sort of, you know, so we'll be talking in more detail. I actually have to just read a bit more about the book <laughs> before we interview her. Um, but we should, um, it should be quite a good interview and there'll be a book launch for that happening at 6.30 um, p.m. Um, tonight at the at um, the Kathleen Symes Library. All right, so I might just play a quick few announcements and then we'll go move on and then we'll move on. <coughs> We're not alone in this fight, that there are many non-Aboriginal people that are willing to stand with us to protect country, protect water. You know, these, these people here get it. They understand why this is so important to our people. 
Well, I'm expected probably to get locked up, to tell you the truth. Um, I'm ready for that. I'm ready to protect our women's space and our women's country as well, as trees and that. So, um, yeah, and we'll just keep coming back and doing what we have to do. Okay, so this is Shiva. And so is this. And this. Shiva, a program that explores feminist issues. Beginning September 2nd, tune in Mondays, 10.30am, for a show where only women get to speak, but everyone can listen. I spent three and a half years living on the street and I know what it's like to have no hope and not to feel part of the society and I think that's where a lot of these people are. But I think we need to help people who are traumatised and help people get back on their feet and give them hope and help them um, feel like they're a part of the society again instead of just moving them on like they're an inconvenience. If it were not for ruminations, how would the views of those of us who have been homeless or are homeless, how would these views ever be aired? How would they ever be expressed? Subscribe to the station that gives airtime to people with a lived experience of homelessness. Support 3CR. Right, you're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio, um, and I'll get Megan to introduce our guests. Yes, uh, so our guest that we're going to be speaking uh, to now is Huseli. I hope I pronounced that right. Um, she was the organiser of the um, Amazon protest uh, last week, or last weekend, sorry, and she's here to talk about um, the current situation in the Amazon. Welcome, Huseli, and how do I pronounce your name correctly? Yeah, that's perfect. Oh, fantastic. Thank you for coming on the show. Um, So now you're uh, intimately involved in um, organising, trying to promote uh, what's happening in the Amazon and and have it stopped. Can you tell us a little bit about the protest um, that happened and what you're doing currently um, to promote um, action on the Amazon? Yes. So um, basically what has been happening in the Amazon, and that's why we um, protest, um, is that because um, our government doesn't see the need uh, to protect the environment, um, they um, have this agenda um, focused in the business of uh, cattle ranching, and this is accelerating the Amazon deforestation, which makes make, which makes us very worried about it. Um, at the moment, um, some uh, investigations uh, have shown that um, the fires were planned and um, organized by a group of farmers um, through WhatsApp. So there's some investigation going on. Um, 
try and find uh, the people who are responsible by this um, for this crime. Um, uh, there are some small groups, small organizations who are um, who we can donate to and who are connected um, directly with the indigenous people from Brazil. Can you let us know um, um, where people can donate? Um, yes, yeah, sure. Let me just check um, the name of the, this organization. And just um, while Huseli is um, uh, checking that, um, there has been some reports of children suffering um, breathing difficulties in Brazil due to all the smoke. Um, and uh, I believe also that um, the cattle ranchers um, were, that were accused of starting the fires actually planned a fire day as well. So they planned this all on a particular day to start these fires in the Amazon. This was yeah, an absolute exactly. deliberate um, yeah, strategy by yeah, the... It was the 10th, it was the 10th of August. Mm. So this was um, known as the Day of Fire, and this is the day where um, these farmers set fire in different parts of Amazon uh, on the same day. So this was the Day of Fire. Coincidentally, all these parts of the Amazon where they set fire are parts that are um, actually um, uh, natural reserves that should be actually kept by the indigenous people. This is another thing that's part of uh, Bolsonaro's um, way to, to rule. Uh, he doesn't really think we should respect Aboriginal people in our country mm. uh, and that this is you know, a waste of time and money because our, for him our land should be just producing. Um, yes. Yeah. So uh, this uh, this is a small group I was talking about that um, if you donate, you'll be sending the money straight away to indigenous people in Brazil. Um, this is called uh, Humicune Acre Community. Um, so, um, so are they on Facebook? How, how do we uh, contact them? Yeah, they have a page uh, on the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a, it's not on Facebook, but you probably can uh, look for it on Google. So I will spell it. It's H U N I. Then K U I N. This is a, a community of um, indigenous people. Mm-hmm. So um, what we might do is um, we'll get that link off you and we'll pop it onto our page uh, when we post up the podcast uh, and then we'll okay. promote that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Question I want to ask, and you sort of alluded to before, is what what is sort of like, because when, just wanted to um, talk about what is the kind of, what was sort of, can you talk in more detail about the complicity of the Bolsonaro government in these fires? Because when he had got elected, um, this was one of the kind of promises he kind of made um, to businesses um, and, you know, agribusiness and all that, that essentially the Amazon rainforest was 
open for business mm. um, and yeah. was going to continue with a lot of deforestation projects for the purpose of profit for a lot of these um, capitalist producers. And that's why community members were against uh, him as a candidate to be president. So um, three things were very clear um, when he was, um, you know, in his um, um, agenda, which were um, trying to take the land from indigenous people um, to give support to capital ranking, uh, so give support to business, and um, flexibilizing the laws uh, against people who were um, doing illegal deforestation. So um, what happened um, is that since he took office in January, um, environmental enforcement actions have dropped, Deforestation has increased, and the head of the federal agency um, was responsible for tracking deforestation. He was fired yes. because he was criticizing the president's policies. I believe that's um, a new development. So yeah. basically, now we don't have anyone looking after, you know, I'm a deforestation because um, there were conflicts between them and the president, and the president basically took all the resources from them and fired the, the head of the federal agency. It's a, it's a worrying um, thing. And just getting back to um, Indigenous uh, people in Brazil, the Indigenous Amazonians um, obviously are some of the people that are most directly affected by this, losing their homes, um, you know, being yes. threatened. Um, I noticed that there's been a significant fight back. They seem to have been putting up a, a big fight. In fact, there was a, a big protest um, with a whole bunch of um, Indigenous um, Amazonian, Amazonian women um, recently. Can you tell Tell us a little yes. bit about what's happening with regards to uh, indigenous um, Amazonians fighting back and fighting for their land. Yes, so um, the indigenous people in Brazil, they are at the moment very angry about it and they have been uh, protesting together with some organizations in Brazil who are um, like environmental um, protectors. Um, but so, but until the moment, the government has an answer to it. So, um, unfortunately, there's still there are just a few people who are there um, supporting the Aboriginal people, and they actually have to deal with all the farmers um, who actually are very dangerous, and they, you know, they are known by killing like indigenous people. Um, for nothing, and the laws actually can't protect them as much um, over there because the media doesn't talk about it. Um, so unfortunately, um, these movements they are basically on their own trying to to fight um, these these fires and the, the people who were responsible. Mm. Um, 
so what can we do here in Melbourne? So, you know, the general community, uh, what, how can we help uh, the fight for uh, the, stopping these um, fires in the Amazon, assisting uh, the Indigenous fight um, against, you know, people enroaching on their land, etc.? What can we do to help you? What we like can conclude like from all of that is that as long as Bolsonaro remains in power, um, the effort to stop deforestation and and actually um, give support to these people who are fighting over there, it has to come from outside the country. Um, I think I think it's very important that we keep protesting. Because um, not only the the people who own business businesses in cattle ranching in Brazil they come from overseas, so mm. most most of the the cattle ranching activities they are owned by um, companies from United States, for example, uh, or for, from other countries in Europe. You know. Um, so these people, the money they are putting in Brazil to stimulate cattle ranching is the same money that people are using to actually um, do illegal deforestation. So I think as long as us as international, um, international people who are worried about the, the environment and about what's happening in Brazil, I think as much... If we talk about it as much as we can with everyone and we keep, you know, um, processing. And the, I think the most important to help um, indigenous people is to um, try and find um, on the internet communities um, who are trying to put these people uh, back uh somewhere to live because now they lost their home. Yeah. Um, yeah, so this, the, the organization I was talking to you before, um, they are someone who we can easily help. So I can see just send the link. Yes, and please. the money will go straight away to indigenous people. Um, yeah, but I think basically that's, that's what we can do right now. Hmm. Thank you. Hi. Um. So we're going to have to um, wrap up the interview now. Um. But do you have any like final comments you would like to make to any listeners? Um. I just would like to um say thank you for everyone who came to the first um process. Um. Now I'm getting contact with people from Climate Change, and I think we can you know have an alliance and try and gather more people for this call because of course they are completely related um, and yeah it's, it's also important that people um, be aware that the media will always try and say that what's happening is not true or that it's not a big deal um, of course we don't think Amazon starts burning or starts having fires um, you know, now we know like illegal deforestation is a very old problem. But um, the fact that our president uh, is clearly not worried about um, protecting our forests and is clearly um, 
willing to to allow people to to um, the forest um, thinking about spending um, the cattle ranch business. Um, this is something we cannot access, um, and that will have um, serious consequences for our future. Once the forest is gone, there is nothing we can do to recover it. Yes. And Amazon is very close to getting tipping point. Um, and then, well, there won't be anything else we can do. So I think it's our um, role to pressure um, the, um, especially the, the countries who are supporting the the cattle ranching in Brazil, these companies, and also people who are buying this meat because they are in, indirectly financially um, the destruction of Amazon. Mm. Hey. Thank you, mm. and uh, thank you so much um, for your time, Riselli. Uh, just one other question: um, Is there another upcoming protest um, to stop the um, the Amazon fires coming up? Um, so there will be um, a protest um, on the 20th of September for climate change, and my idea is to invite um, everyone who's also um, worried about the Amazon to join uh, in this protest. Um, and apart from that, um, I'm talking to um, some other um, people from the Brazilian community here. So we are probably planning to have another protest uh, in mid-September, mm-hmm. uh, but I still don't have a date. Thank you. Please keep in touch with us and let us know when the next protest is so we can promote it and be there to support you. Thank you very much for your efforts. We all have to keep fighting for the Amazon and uh, we do appreciate your efforts. Thank you very much, Rosselli. No worries. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) And that was uh, Amazon uh, protest organiser, Rosselli. All right, we'll just play a quick um, announcement and then we'll move on to more um, news from Green Left Weekly. I just think that it's ironic that the state of Victoria want to treaty with Aboriginal people but have no issue in destroying our sacred sites. War is devastating on the environment. In peacetime, the military is a huge user of fossil fuels, a huge driver of nuclear energy and ultimately the architect of nuclear weapons. Subscribe to 3CR in 2019, fighting for social justice and environmental change. And to all the people that are so afraid of the solutions to climate change that they choose to live in denial instead, the current solutions to the climate emergency are much easier to cope with than the outcomes that will come if we don't. Feed Radical Radio. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Follow, follow the sun. Which way the wind blows. Right, you're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio with Jacob, Felix and Megan in the studio. Um, and now we're going to be talking about, well, Felix is going to start off by talking about the current, um, well, basically the, the British state is um, 
collapsing. <laughs> uh, it's just Brexit shenanigans. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 Well, we love hearing about this in Australia. Oh, my gosh. The tired <laughs> old chestnuts. So, what, um, so um, Felix, what, can you, what is the current situation in Britain right now? Well, the, uh, the exciting news is that's come out recently is that uh, Boris Johnson has asked the Queen to prorogue Parliament. And uh, this is like a very unusual development. So proroguing or proroguing is what happens when you um, basically you end parliamentary debate for a certain period of time and then it comes back after a predetermined recess to discuss bills and whatnot. But um, effectively, it shuts down all debate. So Parliament is, you know, basically the form of democracy that they have in Britain and... um, it's, you know, like, it, obviously it's, it's, it's a place where legislation is debated and, you know, supposedly, you know, people come up with, uh, good ideas to discuss that's, uh, all represented, representing the people of the United Kingdom. This is going to be closed down for, you know, a number of, like, quite a few weeks until just before the, uh, Brexit deadline. So a little bit of background about this is that Brexit is obviously just, you know, it, it's a complete rolling disaster for <laughs> the uh, <laughs> for Britain in various ways. And Theresa May, the previous previous Prime Minister, uh, absolutely lost control of Parliament. It's uh, after she called the election. There's actually there's not a, a majority of any one party. So the Conservatives are the largest party, but Labor uh, actually did much better at the election, and so they've got you know close to a majority, close to 50% of the seats. And then there's the Liberal Democrats and the DUP, which is the um, the um, Ulster Unionists in Northern Ireland, uh, which means that the Conservatives don't have enough seats to actually pass legislation on their own. Hmm. And this created complete chaos before Boris Johnson's prime ministership and effectively ejected well, well, Theresa May. Well, one of the issues as well was um, they could, um, there was no unity between the Tories on the question of how... That's right, yeah. So, yeah, another another factor is that the Tories themselves, the Conservative Party, couldn't muster, you know, a united front to fight for what form of Brexit they wanted because there's a split between hardline no-deal Brexiters who just want to leave the European Union full stop and those who want uh, some kind of deal with the European Union that will mm. preserve a lot of the existing arrangements. Yeah. Boris Johnson has now become the Prime Minister, and one of his first uh, acts is to seek the Queen, ask the Queen to basically shut down the Parliament uh, until just a, a week or so before Brexit. That apparently, he's going to sort everything out. He's going to negotiate with the EU to get some kind of deal or perhaps no deal at all, yeah. and Parliament's just going to have to swallow this. Yeah. Well... One of the things with um, Boris Johnson is he is pretty much in the category of being a hardline Brexiter. He's one yeah, of the no ones deal um, that wants to push the sort of the strongest possible. Um, yeah, well, he was line. the campaign leader of the of the Brexit campaign. Yeah, yeah. He wants he, um, he wants to deport um, you know the right to deport refugees and etc. Build stronger borders. He's pretty much emphasised that. In fact, he's basically like a Donald Trump. Um, so, hang on, just let me get this straight because I'm so confused. Yeah. Boris Johnson asked the Queen to shut down Parliament, to shut down democratic debate so that he could do a hard Brexit exit? Yeah, that's right. And actually, part, <laughs> of, part of the concern, I think, that, they, that Boris Johnson feels is that uh, there's been a, a bit of speculation recently that um, there could be a vote of no confidence in Boris Johnson's prime ministership. And it's not inconceivable that this would pass. For instance, Jeremy Corbyn sent around a letter to 
um, various factions and parties within the parliament to say, would you support me as an interim prime minister uh, for two weeks and then I'll call the general election uh, in order to stop no deal Brexit? Yeah. The Liberal Democrats are against no deal Brexit. Parts of the Tory party are against no deal Brexit. Yeah. It is possible they could get enough votes to do this. Boris Johnson is absolutely yeah. freaked out about this possibility. Oh, although I guess my sort of analysis is, um, I mean, I'm still supportive of Jeremy Corbyn, but I do feel, I think they could be, it would be good, I think, if they were, um, I mean, I think it's good, all well and good that he does push the vote of no confidence, but I think it should be, I think what, what, what should be sort of called upon should be full-on kind of mobilisations, calling for a general election, not just going through the sort of dealing and wheeling and dealing of Parliament, especially since the Liberal Democrats are completely unreliable ally. They're not allies at all. In fact, they're just as, I think, just as terrible as the Corys because the Liberal Democrats through this whole debate have basically just been pushing for this line of, oh, well, we just, of just, um, maybe we should just have, um, some kind of second referendum or etc and not also being completely hostile to any idea of a Corbyn prime ministership yeah I think that I mean this the the latest move um, to see how much support there would be for a vote of no confidence really demonstrates the Liberal Democrats have always said our top priority is to stop a no deal Brexit that's all we care about and when there's an option to say okay then we'll we'll stop the um, article 50 and we'll immediately call the general election, but under the interim Prime Minister Jeremy Corbyn, the Liberal Democrats said, no, nah, we're not interested in yeah, that. Exactly. So that shows what that they really, what, really how useless, care about. Uh, yeah. what they, how useless they are. In fact, it, well, people should have lost all confidence in them after they, um, when David Cameron got elected and they basically just collaborated. Yeah. <laughs> from uh, the and they, they, they broke every single promise that they had that's from the left about preserving services and things like that in order to, to, dive straight into the austerity politics of the Cameron government. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. And there's two things to really take out of this. I mean, firstly, a no-deal Brexit is going to be an absolute disaster for working people in Britain. It's absolutely going to negatively affect them. And second, let's take a moment to appreciate the fact that a monarch can stop democratic debate in 2019. And if we don't think that she could do this in Australia, we definitely have to rethink because, I mean, we only have to look at 1975 and the double dissolution. There is still that power remaining. She can still do this here in Australia. And that's something to take away. I mean, she's doing it in the UK, but she can also do it in Australia as well. This is a monarch. This is not someone who's been democratically elected. Apparently she's been divinely selected to rule the country and she can do this. She's not just some lovely old lady in a crown. She's someone who can shut down debate, which is what she's done. Yeah, well, I mean, um, I mean, two things, I guess. <laughs> like, she's basically, she has, she, the convention is, like, she has a huge amount of latent power. So it's mm. totally within her power to do all of these things, as, you know, like in 1975 in Australia and proging parliament. That's a huge amount of latent power. But actually, the convention is, is that she just does whatever the prime minister will ask her to do. Boris Johnson went to her and said, I want to prorogue parliament. She gives it the thumbs up. It'd be pretty unusual if she were to turn that down and actually use her power, you know, to project her own opinions about this sort of stuff. But it is it is worrying, and actually there is a broken system. Though, why do we have a divinely elected yeah, oh, monarch? Yeah, it's, it's an act, a ridiculous a anachronism. Yeah, <laughs> but it, yeah, interestingly, the last time there was a major prorogation, you know, that this this will be the, one of the longest and uh, most sort of controversial and serious prorogings of Parliament 
for decades or centuries. There have been a handful of them um, mm. over the over, over history. But I think one they of were there the, for elections. Is that right? Just pro- yeah, just just but just for a few days. But you know, the, an extended one is this is quite unusual. Uh, yeah, and one of the the uh, most historically interesting times that this happened was uh, back in the 17th century under King Charles. Uh, during the English Revolution. So <laughs> Interesting. How long was that one for? Uh, oh, jeez, I don't know. But um, that, 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 ended in, that ended in massive chaos with the rump parliament and the rise of Oliver Cromwell, who basically oh, took over the country as an autocrat. <laughs> Interesting times in the world. Interesting <laughs> times. Yeah. So, yeah, we'll definitely have to stay tuned um, for further developments. And it's probably worth also we'll see, try and explore what is kind of the role um, that kind of radical left kind of forces are generally playing. But I think mm. generally what I've observed is the radical left, I think, is generally pushing for Corbyn to sort of take the sort of... Um, sort of mobilisation approach of mobilising his base and he, the masses. Uh, although I guess one of the... To, to do what? To basically call for a general election okay. as immediately as soon as possible. Um, that's sort of the practical kind of immediate transitional kind of thing you can do at this stage. Um, but yeah, I might just go... We might just go play a few quick announcements and then play this recording by Karen Fletcher. We we'll probably won't be able to play the entire thing, but we'll play parts of it and I'll give a bit of a background after this announcement. Help 3CR support the rights of Indigenous Australians. They mean to save our culture and save our dreams, our footprints, dreams, our songline and keep our culture going strong. Of course a lot of the Aboriginals having been stolen were put into state care and also others The recognition were. of what our people have been through in the last 200 years, the recognition of our culture in the last 40,000 years and the recognition of where we are heading into the future. Welcome to uh, Survival Day, Invasion Day. 223 years ago the white man landed on our shores. Subscribe to 3CR and help Keep Indigenous voices on air. Call us on 94198377 or visit 3cr.org.au. Subscribe now. Right, you're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio. Um, so the next thing we'll play for the next 10 or 20 or so minutes. Um, will be um, a recording of a talk by Karen Fletcher, who recently spoke at a public forum organised by Green Left Weekly titled Build Communities, um, Not Prisons. Um, so in this talk, um, Karen is generally talking about the prison industrial complex, um, the issue of um, how the state government has been putting more money into prisons than actual social services, and then talks uh, again as well about the kind of inadequacy of of prisons that are actually dealing with the supposed social problems that they're supposed to deal with, um, leading to sort of an argument on why prisons should be abolished altogether. So that's, um, so yeah, we'll be playing this recording um, for the next 20 minutes. Yeah, I, um, yeah good, good to be reminded of, about what happened in the election. Um, and increasingly in all elections, I noticed Boris Johnson's first step as the new Prime Minister of Great Britain was to announce 20,000 new police and 10,000 new prison cells. Um, it's an absolute um, a disease that has uh, captured all governments, including the one here in Victoria, which we'll talk about more and what, what it would be good to talk about what are our strategies around that. One thing I wanted to add, add to what Anthony said is I think in Victoria, as in most other jurisdictions too, we've got an extremely strong poli- police and prison guard lobby 
um, and they actually do influence elections. Uh, and, you know, one of the things uh, about that election was, yeah, getting all of those um, new powers, new equipment, money for prisons and, um, prison officers and police actually quietened down that lobby against the Labor government, which I think they felt was very important. So I think in terms of how we deal with police and prison guards in the Labor movement, we need to think more, more carefully about um, uh, how we do that and how we relate to them um, and talk to them as, other as members of other unions. And I want to talk a little bit about the prison abolition movement in the United States, which is a bit ahead of us in terms of what they some of the th work that they've been doing with, um, with unions. But um, as um, Sue said, we meet this evening on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and I too paid my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. And I also want to acknowledge the many thousands of Aboriginal people who have been and continue to be imprisoned in this land for the purpose of dispossession and, co and colonisation and those who have been killed, as Anthony mentioned. We acknowledge that the people of the Kulin Nation have never ceded sovereignty um, and of so many uh, nations across the country have never ceded sovereignty despite this brutal ongoing violence against them by the state and that they remain strong in their enduring connection to land, culture and community. And I want to put forward that understanding the process of colonisation is crucial to any uh, uh, examination of the role, development and struggle against prisons in Australia. I identify myself as an anti-prison activist, also called decarcerationist or abolitionist, and it would be great to discuss and what that means to people and um, how that's been um, practised around the world and around Australia up until now and how we can use those ideas. Um, but I think um, for any uh, struggle against um, the uh, expansion of ever-expanding nature of prisons, we need to understand where they come from. And in Australia, they come from a process of colonisation. Um, as we know, um, oh, sorry, sovereign... Uh, in this talk, I want to argue that working in solidarity with Aboriginal people and all um, ordinary working people as they build strong, sovereign communities is the most fundamental alternative that there is to incarceration. As we know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are what we call overrepresented in Australian prisons, as if there was a good number which would be well, properly represented. Um, but let's remind ourselves of the reality again. According to the 2016 census, less than 1% of the Victorian population are Aboriginal, probably an underestimate, but that's the official figure, 0.8% around. But 12% of all people sent to prison um, last year were Aboriginal people. 1,312 1, people, Aboriginal people were imprisoned in this state uh, last year. Um, close to 20% of women imprisoned in Victoria are Aboriginal, and Aboriginal children are imprisoned here at 13 times the rate of non-Aboriginal children. Uh, it's, um, and the rates, of course, are much higher in places where Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are a greater proportion of the representation of the population. And Victoria, as Anthony said, is now in the grip of a prison-building frenzy. And these numbers, both the numbers of prisoners and the proportion of prisoners who are Aboriginal people, and most particularly the rate of imprisonment of Aboriginal women, are accelerating in Victoria on a daily basis. I had a couple of slides for this, but if people are interested, I'll put them in with the talk, um, perhaps in Alliance Voices or somewhere like that. Uh, as we reported in Greenleaf Weekly in June, you might have seen our post-budget story on the back of Greenleaf Weekly, 1,600 new prison cells but only 1,000 homes. Um, the Victorian government allocated $1.8 billion in the 19-20 state budget to build 1,600 new prison cells. Since the Andrews Labor government was elected in its first term in 2014, 
Prison capacity in Victoria has grown from 6,400 cells to today more than 8,200 cells. With this budget, there will be over 10,000 cells available for imprisoning people in Victoria at a recurrent uh, running cost of around about $1.6 billion a year. So the $1.8 billion was actually just the capital expenditure to build these new cells. Uh, the recurrent expenditure is that every year. Um, the prison, this prison infrastructure spend will add 100 cells to the Dame Phyllis Frost Women's Prison at Deer Park, 300 new cells to the next door men's prison, which is called Raven Hall, um, 300 cells in a new remand centre in West Melbourne, a big new court and um, remand centre. Uh, it will double the number of cells at the new mega men's prison in Lara near Geelong. From, they were originally going to build it at around 650, now 1,250. Uh, it's already, um, ground is already broken there. And the government is also already building, as Anthony mentioned, a 250-cell prison for children at Cherry Creek um, near Werribee. And indications are that the government will announce more in the next budget. Plans have been underway for several years, well out of the public eye, to build a new high-security women's prison in a regional area of Victoria, most likely Morewell. The project was not included in this budget, although we gather it nearly made it into this budget, um, but it must not be allowed to be included in any future budget. Uh, people might have seen a couple of weeks ago there was a run of articles in The Age by Royce Miller about um, the rising imprisonment rates of, in Victoria, uh, and he actually put this question to the uh, Commissioner for Corrections, Victoria Emma Cassar, and she said, we have no plans to build a women's prison, we've got money for it, and we intend to use that money for non-prison options or options that are not quite prisons. But the question is, why then is the money going to a prisons department to build something that's not a prison? Uh, anything that's going to be prison, built by a prisons department is going to be a prison. In fact, our experience, I'm, um, I don't know if Sue mentioned, but I'm on the board at Flat Out, which is an agency that um, provides support for women who are le leaving prison. Um, and we're starting to find that a lot of the agencies in that sort of area, service provision for prisoners after they leave prison, are getting corrections money, mostly corrections money, rather than from DHHS or social welfare or any other parts of the government. And as a result, are starting to build and run things which look more and more like prisons. It used to be thought of as halfway houses, but now they have curfews, uh, rules put up on the walls, lock, places where people can be locked down. There's a question being raised now about whether some of these agencies, which some of them are charities, actually need to get these places registered as prisons because of the, the kind of regimes that they're running in them. So the prisons, um, uh, it's not just about building actual prisons out in the community, although those are getting more and more, but also the, the web of imprisonment is reaching out into the suburbs. One of these projects is called the Atrium Project. It's in Preston in a suburban house, but it's got bars on the windows and a curfew and starting to look more and more like a prison. This is the kind of thing I think that we might just be starting to see more of. So the budget brought an outcry from a, a range of social, um, community, legal and welfare services, um, including the Victorian Council of um, Social Services. Uh, CEO of the of VCOS, Emma King, said to the media, the budget blows almost $2 billion on a mega prison that won't reduce crime or make us safer. Think of what else we could do with that $2 billion. For $2 billion, we could have built tens of thousands of social housing units. And I, um, 
Yeah, there's so much more to say about that. We wrote a little bit about that in Green Left Weekly at the time, but the running cost for public housing units, of course, is around about $6,000 a year, an absolute fraction of what it costs to imprison people. And yet uh, we're spending way more money on, um, on prison cells than we are on public housing. But not everyone was unhappy about the budget. This is a, a press release from the Geo Group Inc. from Boca Raton in Florida. The Geo Group Inc. announced today that its subsidiary, the Geo Group Australia, is currently in negotiation discussions with the state of Victoria to increase the capacity of the Ravenhall Correctional Centre by an additional 300 beds. This was just, just post the announcement in the budget. And this is a press release that's in the US to their US, state, to their US shareholders announcing this. Increasing the centre's capacity to 1,600 beds. The 300 bed capacity increase is expected to generate incremental annualised revenues of $19 million per year for shareholders. The Ravenhall Correctional Centre was developed by a GEO-led consortium. The $700 million project was financed under a public-private partnership structure which included a capital investment from GEO of approximately $90 million with returns on investment consistent with GEO company, GEO's company-owned facilities. GEO Australia operates the centre which opened in late 2017 under a 25-year contract with the State of Victoria. Uh, George C. Zoli, Chairman of the Board and Chief Executive of GEO said, We appreciate the trust placed in our company by the State of Victoria, which is a reflection of our partnership with the State since 1999 with the opening of the Fulham Correctional Centre, which is GEO's second centre in, Queens in, um, Queensland, in Victoria. We're looking forward to working with the Department of Justice and Community Safety to further strengthen our long-standing partnership. The GEO Group Inc. is the first fully integrated equity real estate investment trust in specialising in the design, financing, development and operation of correctional, detention and community re-entry facilities around the globe. GEO is the world's leading provider of diversified correctional, detention, community re-entry and electronic monitoring services to government agencies worldwide with operations in the United States, Australia, South Africa and the United Kingdom. What a rogues gallery. GEO's worldwide operations include the ownership and or management of 135 facilities totalling approximately 96,000 cells, including projects under development with a growing workforce of approximately 23,000 professionals. A glowing media release about the profit potential of prisons in Victoria. The Herald Sun and the Victorian government would have you believe that this, is, um, that this is all about community safety. Indeed, the name of the department that administers prisons in Victoria is called the Department of Justice and Community Safety. Safety, safety, safety. Not that long ago, the story was that prisons were about rehabilitation or correction of prisoners. The, the word corrections is a remnant from that time. It does sort of 20 years ago when people were talking about that. But those days are gone. Today we're told that these institutions are for safety, that the, their purpose is to restrain hordes of dangerous people who are determined to harm us. The prison narrative now is all about the most extreme stories of individual violence, with politicians delighted to tell the media scrum that they make no apology for locking up the worst of the worst and keeping people safe. 
A huge driver of the current overcrowding at the Dame Phyllis Frost Women's Prison is the changes to the bail laws um, that Anthony mentioned that were made in the wake of the murder of Jill Maher and other crimes by violent men. Often men, by the way, who spent long stretches in prison only to come out more dangerous than they were, come out more dangerous they were when they went in. The Victorian government has essentially overturned the old presumption in favour of bail. It used to be that when you appeared before the court, the presumption was that you would get bail unless uh, there was some reason why you shouldn't. Um, now the presumption in Victorian courts is immediate imprisonment for, for a wide range of crimes. Immediate imprisonment, unsentenced and on remand, including for relatively minor offences in the end, like shoplifting. Half the women sent to the Dame Phyllis Frost Centre are on remand. Half or half of the women who go there are on remand. That is, they have not been convicted of any crime and a significant proportion of them are never actually convicted of a crime. Um, or they're just held there on remand for a few weeks or it could be months if the court system is particularly choked up, which it can be, and they're awaiting trial. Just long enough to lose their job, sometimes their lease, their home, and sometimes even their kids to child protection before they could be um, either found not guilty, the charges are dropped, or they may be sentenced to the time that they've served while they were on remand and having never served a day as a convicted prisoner. This is actually the polar opposite of what's been recommended time and time again by commissions of inquiry into Australia's greatest shame, which is the over-representation of Aboriginal and Islander people in prisons and the resulting shameful numbers of Aboriginal people who die in custody. More than 400 Aboriginal people have died in custody since the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody in, in 1991. And arguably the key recommendation of that commission, recommendation 92, was that imprisonment should only be used as a sanction of last resort. It's not only been ignored, but now it is actually being turned completely on its head. The Victorian government and many other governments, uh, as we uh, have heard, is now doing the opposite, increasingly requiring courts to imprison people first, as a first, um, as a first step. Um, and ask questions later by cha changing the bail laws, removing, removing non-prison sentencing options like suspended sentences and so forth, um, and the imposition of mandatory imprisonment for a range of offences. <clears throat> well, there isn't actually a l lot of time here to discuss what's got us here, but I did want to um, uh, whet people's appetite for finding out more about the, some of the historical drivers of um, mass imprisonment, and of course the centre of mass, the epicentre of mass uh, imprisonment is the United States. And there's this little book which is um, really quite easy to read, which people can get hold of, uh, by Angela Davis, called um, is, "Are Prisons Obsolete?" And I really recommend it to people. One thing that's particularly good. Um, well, I'll just say Angela Davis, who you've probably heard as a Black Pan of as a Black Panther and um, uh, a famous writer of ra race, um, race, class, race and class and sex, 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 race and class, one of those. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also a prison abolitionist and an activist on this issue. She regularly visits Australia um, as a, a guest of Sisters Inside that was mentioned before the um, organisation of prisoners and ex-prisoners in Brisbane. Uh, she lives and works in California, which is the epicentre of the epicentre of mass incarceration in the United States, where they've um, just, just recently started to try and reduce 
um, imprisonment because they had such high overcrowding um, that they were ordered by the Supreme Court of the US to try to reduce the numbers of prisoners. Of course, they've tried, they've tried to do that by moving prisoners out to other prisons interstate or putting them into other jurisdictions. But anyway, they've had, Angela Davis and, and prison abolitionists have had some success in, in, in California and are uh, making some headway. Um, so what she does in this book is she traces the development of mass racist incarceration in the US back to its uh, roots in slavery. And I was going to quote something. I will, actually. Um, she, what I think, why I wanted to go into this is because she traces the roots of, imprison, of mass imprisonment back to um, slavery in the United States. And I really think that that work needs to be done here. We need to start to have a look at the first, the, the first prisons that were rounding up Aboriginal people um, into, you know, particularly in Western Australia, where you know, the, the um, colonisation and, and stealing of the lands of Aboriginal people for pastoral purposes meant that they built a range of Aboriginal-only prisons, specialist prisons with chains on the walls um, for Aboriginal people to be held in. And after that, they, which was a specifically Aboriginal prison, which was supposed to be originally an open prison, but they ended up building a sort of a brick uh, prison there for Aboriginal people. And a similar history in Queensland where um, you know, Palm Island, uh, 50 years after Rottnest, was opened up as a prison specifically for Aboriginal people and most specifically for rebel leaders of Aboriginal communities um, throughout Queensland. Um, and the reserve system and the protection system in Queensland as well, you can see, having worked in North Queensland, I can see that the... Remain, that the um, prison culture, particularly at Lotus Glen and some of the northern Queensland prisons, still has that feeling about it of a sort of a concentration of um, Aboriginal people from the communities uh, in the same sort of racist tradition that has existed in that state um, you know, for the past uh, 200 years, but escalated in the past um, one, 100 years. Um, I, won't, I won't quote from, uh, um, Angela Davis because I'm going to run out of time, but I do think that we um, have some work to do here when we're building what I think is going to be an anti-prison movement. And I'll talk later about why I think um, it's much broader than about issue, broader issue than about prisons. Um, but for us to be able to uh, have the kind of coalitions that we need to have with Aboriginal communities uh, trying to build their own alternatives to prison, which is strong, sovereign communities, that we need to understand where our prisons have come from and how they've been created and how they're constituted. Um, yeah, the prison was a key instrument in the colonisation of Australia and the theft of Aboriginal land. Um, there's lots of uh, material that you can read online about that. Um, Okay, so having given that rather broad um, sort of um, summary, I wanted to just introduce the discussion by talking about abolitionist, poli um, abolitionist politics and the abolitionist position on prisons. Um, it's something which is starting to uh, um, garner a lot of interest in Australia. It's already a very large movement in the United States with critical resistance and a range of other groups. Um, and essentially it's about linking the, the struggle against mass incarceration with the st struggles of communities to build communities, not prisons. Um, to imagine a future where there is actually uh, an alternative to imprisonment which is a society which is not built on violence 
for the suppression of, and oppression of people, colonisation, racism, etc., um, but to build communities that are, are built on non-violent um, um, collaboration and for the good of all. And in fact, I would, uh, for me, it hasn't been a big leap to go from socialism to abolitionism because really I think that's what socialism is all about. And I actually think that all the campaigns that Socialist Alliance and Green Left Weekly are involved in are essentially abolitionist campaigns because in order to imagine a world where there aren't any prisons, you have to imagine a world where there is sufficient public housing, public transport, education, health services, those sorts of things. Um, and Oftentimes people say um, abolitionist politics is a sort of a, an anarchist idea that's trying to jump over the problem of the state. Uh, in fact, what I've found is that there is a strong strand of, of socialism in abolitionist politics in the United States. And I guess that's particularly around Angela Davis. But another person that I've read a lot and I would really recommend is Ruth Gilmore, who is a Marxist geographer who's worked a lot with Angela Davis and has written on this topic, a student of Mike Davis, who's also a really interesting Marxist geographer, and has not only been an academic, but has also worked in some amazing campaigns in California that have actually stopped prisons. They've estimated that they've stopped the building of 140,000 prison cells in the US through the kinds of campaigns that they've been running. And essentially those campaigns are about working with local communities and finding out what it is that they need in their community and whether that is actually a prison. Uh, you could imagine that kind of approach here where we would um, work with the communities around Morwell or Lara or other places where these prisons are being built and talk to the communities about what are the issues in those communities. Um, prisons have been posed as a sort of a job solution, an economic solution for depressed regional areas like Morwell. Uh, and, the, and, the, and the question is, do they really deliver the jobs and the economic um, uh, advantages that the state government are saying that they will. If you have a look at the website for the Engage Victoria website for the Cherry Creek Prison for Children, the Lara Prison or any of the prisons, um, they're all full of uh, um, promises that they're going to bring health and wealth and prosperity to the peoples of those areas and provide jobs etc and economic advantages etc. Well, the truth in the United States has been that that hasn't actually eventuated and in fact um, it's caused a lot of problems in communities there and the abolitionist campaigns have worked with people and communities in those areas to discuss what it is that they really are concerned about and in a lot of cases it's environmental concerns about farming and um, uh, pesticides and uh, you know the kinds of um, issues that happen in Morwell in terms of air quality very very common for those sorts of issues to be the the kinds of issues that in the United States where they've tried to put prisons, they're actually the top of people's minds. And abolitionists will go into those areas and start talking about those issues rather than just the prison as the be-all and end-all of everything, um, which I think is, a, is an approach that we could start to use in Victoria. It's certainly the case that there is an opportunity now uh, to prevent the construction of a new women's prison, to reduce the number of women at the Dane Phyllis Frost Correctional Centre. Certainly, um, Flat Out is wanting to work with anybody and everybody who would like to be involved in such a campaign and to make sure that the um, so-called alternatives to women's prisons are not actually just little prisons. Uh, and it's going to take a real alliance of community organisations and activist groups to make that happen. And we think that it needs to be 
uh, a group with a mindset which is far beyond prison reform or you know, making things a little bit better for prisoners. It needs to be one that imagines a future where we don't see prison as a solution to all um, social problems, uh, but rather that we consider all the kinds of social um, services and programs that have lost funding in a period where prisons have seemed to have gained all of the funding. Um, all of the you know, public housing, education, health and welfare services are being reduced at the same time that money is being poured into police and prisons. And we believe that the community, if they understood that, would be, would be um, supportive of, uh, for example, investing in public housing and ensuring that uh, we're not creating the kinds of circumstances where people um, are self-medicating with drugs and alcohol and um, and ending up in situations that um, put them in touch with the criminal justice system. Uh, it just means that we have to get out and talk to people and, and engage with communities um, on that level. It's not about going out, I don't think, um, and saying we think all prisons should be closed down tomorrow because um, that uh, is not going to get us a hearing amongst ordinary people. It's about talking to ordinary people about what it is that's actually the problems in their lives and what they need and is it really a prison. Right, that was Karen Fletcher um, speaking at the public forum Build Communities Not Prisons. Um, yeah, it was quite a long talk, but I felt I might as well play the whole entire of it, which means we're late getting into the activists' um, calendar. Um, so, yeah, I'll pass it on to Megan and Felix, who will be starting with the activist calendar. Yes, um, so actually I'll just start with an event. Um, there's actually a rally in Coolaroo at 10.30 on Saturday, this coming Saturday, the 31st of August. Um, and it reads, it's time we hit, we all hit the streets with our demand for the Victorian government and its so-called protection authorities to do their tro job and actually protect this community from fire and pollution threats from badly managed waste stockpiles. And just to give some context, um, the, in the north, um, there has been many, many toxic fires. I think about five or six in the last three or four years, um, including toxic waste dumps. Uh, basically, it's become an area that is a dumping ground illegally um, for toxic waste. There's been a lot of um, uh, businesses who've also had toxic waste permits but have stored far more than they've actually uh, had permits for, etc. Um, the Anti-Toxic Waste Alliance... Uh, will hold its first community protest rally, as I said, in Coolaroo, 10.30 this Saturday. Uh, the purpose of the rally is to demand immediate action from the government, EPA and emergency services to protect the community from potentially catastrophic fire threat posed by Glass Recovery Services, uh, which is a glass sorting plant associated with and directly beside SKM Recycling's notorious compound in Mafra Street in Coolaroo. Uh, and that's the site of the devastating 2017 waste fire. Uh, we want this dangerous site made fire safe as soon as possible. It's a tragedy waiting to happen. A Hume City Council officer last week described it as a matter of life and death. Uh, this latest risk fire, a fire risk is an emergency situation and must not be left in the hands of private business owners to address. Too many lives are at stake. And what they're asking you to do um, is they want each um, of... Uh, uh, ATWA's 35 members to throw their practical support behind this, um, promoting the protest, um, uh, so, you know, promoting it on Facebook, promoting it to your networks, etc. Um, and the, the, uh, it's just an absolute disgrace. They've said the Victorian government um, is criminally negligent in allowing this site to deteriorate to such an unsafe condition. 
nobody deserves this and the north is particularly targeted for this kind of stuff and you know you wouldn't see this happen in Turak you wouldn't see it happen in Brighton why is it happening in this area so get down to that rally uh 10:30 this Saturday um and uh you can he- um you can actually get more information you can call this mobile number 0421612164 or you can email so it's uh, the email is all one word antitoxicwastealliance at gmail.com thanks very much okay sure well, there's, uh, yeah thanks megan um so we've got a few other things coming up. So this Saturday, tomorrow, there's um, our big rally, Protest for Religious Exemptions Bill, No Right to Discriminate. So that's about the, um, the debate in Parliament that's um, happening right now about allowing religious organisations to... Oh, what about what's <coughs> happening today? There's an RTBU... Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, OK, I'll get to that. So <laughs> this, the, the uh, religious exemptions protest is happening at 1pm at the State Library on Swanson Street in the city. Uh, now, there's a, like a mass action at the moment, a strike for tram drivers. Uh, that's happening at 10 a.m. 10 a.m. Is it 2 o'clock? 10 till 2 or something? Mm, 10 till 2 or 3. Yeah, yeah about then uh, at Trades Hall. So yep. tram drivers are striking for better conditions. Uh, they're asking for uh, like a decent pay, pay increase as well as stopping movements to casualisation. Absolutely. Um, they're quite concerned about their conditions, and so we definitely should support them, get behind them, and, yeah, we support this strike. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, now, later on in the day at 5pm, uh, there's a protest stand with Hong Kong, fight for democracy, uh, State Library, 5pm uh, t- tomorrow on Saturday. Um, so, like, obviously the massive uh, democracy protests in Hong Kong are, um, you know, something that uh, we, should, we should all get behind. Um, Extinction Rebellion, Footscray Speak Out, also on Saturday. John Holland, CPB and the state Labor government currently poisoning our suburbs. The Westgate Tunnel Project has been digging up toxic soil with the cancerous PFAS and dumping it all over the West. Come to the Speak Out to fight back against this environmental destruction and abuse of workers' rights. 5.30pm, Footscray Plaza, uh, 18 Albert Street, Footscray. Uh, also, there's a book launch and discussion, Australian Armour. Uh, join Samir Khartoun in conversation with Crystal McKinnon, Eugenia Flynn and Tasman Salmon to discuss colonial epistemes and knowledge relations dismantling white supremacy through their language and writing. So that's happening at the uh, Multipurpose Room, Kathleen Syme Library and Community Centre in Faraday Street, Carlton. All right, um, so we'll just get a put a pause there because um, our next um, guest has... Um, is on the line right now. Um, so we actually just announced um, her book launch, and that's who we have in the on the on the line. Um, Samya um, Khan Akatan uh, um, is on the line right now, who is going to be launching her new book um, called Australian uh, Nama. If I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, is yeah, basically it's a think a new book that kind of discusses a colonial espionage esthenemes and knowledge relations, dismantling white supremacy through language and writing and shifting the terms of address in anti-racism work. Um, so good morning. Good morning. All right. Um, can you give us a bit of um, a summary, I, I guess, about what your kind of book is about? I guess for listeners who've probably not heard of this book before, in fact, I've only just heard about it in like the past week since the book launch has been, when was announced. 
Yes, so look, I've gone and written a history of Australia of sorts, but kind of very different to histories of Australia that are usually written because it's actually written through non-English language sources and archives. So I've actually gone and foregrounded the archives and languages of people who were colonised by the British Empire and I've gone, you know, these are actually... um, stories and details that are completely absent from the Anglosphere history world. What happens if we enter the past using these as our entry points? Um, and, yeah, so that's what that's what Australian Alma is all about. And the name, Australian Alma, is actually a, in Farsi or Persian or Bengali, uh, it would mean the Book of Australia. So the, <laughs> the title itself is in another language. It's an attempt to basically get inside the imaginative world of the people who were colonised. This is absolutely fascinating. Um, you know, I've actually wanted to, um, welcome by the way. Um, I, this is the sort of thing I've been thinking of. You know, we kind of, we need more stories like this. We need more voices about what happened. Can you give us some examples of some stories that you've got in the book or interesting parts of history that we may not have been taught at school, etc.? Well, one of the things that is told to us is that there was the white Australia policy. If it's taught, it's taught about a time when there's actually just, you know, only white people in Australia. But, of course, what happens is that there is lots and lots of people who are still coming and still working because there's lots of industries that are still dependent on non-white labour. And there's, of course, always Aboriginal people. So what happens if you actually start paying attention to these non-English language sources is that get, you get those, you get inside the imaginations and minds of those people. So one of the most incredible things that happened is that I found um, this incredible book in Broken Hill, which has for many, many years now been mislabeled as a Quran because it's been sitting in one of these tiny little mosques in Australia and people just thought, look, it's a big book, in a mosque it must be a Quran. And I travelled out there and I opened it up and I started reading it and it's not a Quran, it's actually a 500-page book of Sufi poetry in Bengali, right? And so this thing immediately tells you that this, not only was someone reading Sufi poetry in the 1860s in Australia, this is a book that you perform out to people, like you, you sing it out to large groups of people. So who are the workers... Who are the merchants? Who are the groups of people in Broken Hill who are gathering to hear Sufi poetry in Bengali in the 18, you know, in the late 19th century? So it's just this book. It has sort of generated all these different archives and questions that never, ever, ever find any expression in in the Anglosphere. Mm. Sorry, Megan, I just want to have okay. a question I want to ask. Is, um, I wanted to ask, um, Samia, how does this, um, book contribute, um, I guess to the broader kind of, um, decolonization, uh, I guess, movement within academia? Because I guess one of the things, um, I've read about this book is it, um, challenges this kind of central idea, um, that, you know, shapes a lot of academia and history that, you know, um, sort of, Essentially that, um, you know, the Anglophone world and European knowledge traditions and epistemology, um, is, you know, are superior to kind of like the epistemologies of, you know, the, the colonized. Um, what, what, what yeah. would you say your book contributes to in, in terms of that debate? Oh my goodness. Well, 
the book started as a project at the University of Sydney, and one of the things that I was very confronted with is this realisation that, you know, when the foundation stone for somewhere like the University of Sydney was placed in Gadigal land, what happens at that very moment is an assertion of the superiority of European knowledge traditions, you know, British knowledge traditions over those of the people in whose land that the foundation stone is actually based on. Now, this has profound consequences, not just for, you know, how the right wing are operating today, it has profound consequences for how social justice activists are actually operating today. For many, many, many anti-racism activists even, we are trapped in this notion of the epistemic superiority of Enlightenment thought or European thought. So this book really directly challenges that. It goes and takes these small parts of, you know, Aboriginal language thought or Bengali, Urdu or Persian, and it goes, wow, look at the way that this text actually just belongs to a whole other massive intellectual tradition that points at it. They're almost like keys to libraries of thought. And this book is an invitation for social justice activists in particular to actually wander into these other knowledges of thought because, as you know, we've known for a very long time, the tools of the master cannot dismantle the master's house. You have to look beyond the new tools. Hmm. Megan had a question, I think. Yeah, no, th- this is absolutely fascinating. This intersects with a particular um, interest of mine. Um, I come from a, a small uh, gold mining town, and I've always been fascinated um, as a child. We have a, a Chinese um, uh, a section in our cemetery, and I became fascinated by um, Chinese immigrants who came over in the, in the time of the, the gold rush and their culture and everything. And so this kind of segues into that. It's an absolutely amazing thing because a lot of, um, a lot of these, uh, historical, uh, events and a lot of this historical sort of cultural, uh, information seems to get lost or it just sits there, as you were saying, um, with a book of poetry. It sits there in, in dusty, uh, museums or in dusty holding places and it doesn't seem to get an airing. Um, and it's just interesting. With the different methods of thought that we have, um, you know, with these different cultures coming to Australia, um, it's it's an absolutely fascinating thing, and I think it's really good that you have published this book and given us an insight into um, non-white Australian communities and the history of non-white Australian communities. Obviously, we've got you know indigenous culture that's been around for you know eighty thousand years, but then we've also got these other cultures who've come in. But their voices haven't been heard. Um, can you get? Um, can I just also get you to repeat the name of the book and the publisher um, that it has been published with, and also where people can get it? Uh, this is a fascinating um, concept. Okay, so the book is Australia Nava, South Asian Odyssey in Australia, and the publisher is University of Queensland Press. And the book is actually going to officially be released on the third of September. Um, so you'll be able to get it in Australian bookshops. But if you want earlier copies tonight, the, the events that we're having tonight, there'll be copies available there, and there'll also be copies available at the Northern Writers Festival. So, you know, the biggest thing that I was really trying to do with this, just as you say, is take knowledges of other 
peoples apart from the colonisers and go, these aren't dead. These aren't in the past. They're not to be relegated to some long-lost past that's mm. backwards and traditional or whatever. These are tools that we can actually use to build futures. And, you know, in doing that act, what you do is you take them out of the museum. You take them out of the museum and you go, actually, these have continued to be alive for the people to whom they belong. Um, so, yeah, I'm really excited to see how, how Australian left communities in particular respond to the book. Absolutely. Can you just tell a little bit about um, the event tonight, uh, where it is, etc., what time? Yeah, it's at the Captain Science Library, uh, which is like, attached to the University of Melbourne. Uh, I believe that's actually at 6 o'clock. Is it? Oh, look, you know... Uh, 6.30pm, I've got here. <laughs> We've got it at 6.30pm. 6.30pm, and yeah, so it's going to be me in conversation with three incredible activist scholars, and I am just so excited to see what comes, because this is the moment that the book comes back to social justice movements and we actually talk about what this means for the many different kinds of social justice projects that we're all involved in. How can we decolonise social justice projects and thinking? And what sort of, um, you know, if there was a take-home message from the book, what would it be? How would you condense down, you know, something, you know, the essence of the book, basically? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I, I put you on the spot there, but well, give us a take-home message or something that's, you know, a common thread and, and that we can sort of run with. Basically, the land that we are living on is nothing like what people are telling you <laughs> that it's actually like in the English language sphere. Get out of the imprisonment of the Anglosphere, please world try to see through different eyes that would be that would be my message yeah well um thank you very much um yeah um yes, thank you and um yeah we'll hope um just to remind the listeners that the book launch is going to be um her book launch is going to be at 6 30 tonight um at the kathleen symes library i think it's in room four or one of the rooms at least but if you at least get to the kathleen symes library mm-hmm. there will be signage i hope um that will lead you to where the exact room is Thank you so much, um, and we look forward to reading your book. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you very much. See you. Bye bye. Right, um, that was Samia Kane, um, who um, just wrote, recently wrote a book called Australian Nama, which is um, sort of like a text that sort of um, talks about, you know, decolonisation around, you know, texts using um, some old poetry. Um, so um, we only have how many much time do we have left? Um, five minutes. Five minutes yeah. I actually just want to play a quick thing. Just this is just from a uh, thirty seconds um, from the um, snap protest that was organised yesterday um, in defence of the um, Priya and Nad's family um, at the at the Melbourne airport. So I'll play this quickly for the next twenty five seconds, seven seconds, and then we'll make a few other final announcements for our program. No fear.
that you're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio, and um, Felix had some quick announcements to make. Yeah, uh, so just continuing on from um, <clears throat> the calendar that I was speaking about before the interview, on uh, Sunday, this Sunday, we've got um, Moreland Community Civil Disobedience Training Workshop, which is a one-day session to clarify what non-violent direct, sh- direct action is, why we do it, and how to make it work for climate action. And that's from 10 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. at the Coburg Library, organised by Extinction Rebellion, Moreland, uh, and they ask that you RSVP. And uh, Monday, there's a public meeting, Nauru and Manus, refugees speak out, the case to close the camps, 6.30 p.m., that's at a and um, 535 Elizabeth Street in the city. Uh, and next Friday, Moreland Global Strike Info Session. Hear how you can step up your action on climate change and supersize the September the 20th climate strike. Uh, that's 2 p.m. at the Coburg Library meeting room. Uh, and following Sunday, September the 8th, film screening 2040 Moreland. Moreland Council has a goal and vision for a zero-carbon Moreland by 2040. You're invited to this free um, free special screening of the innovative film 2040 by award-winning filmmaker Damon Garmo. Meet Climate Action Moreland and other sustainability and climate groups. Food available 2pm at the Brunswick Town Hall. And then uh, Wednesday on September the 11th, public meeting, Anthony Lowenstein reports on the drug war. Like the never-ending war on terror, the drug war is a multi-billion dollar industry that won't go down without a fight. Lowenstein's new book explains why. 7pm, Room 1 Trades Hall, 54 Victoria Street, Carlton South, hosted by the New International Bookshop. Uh, Thursday, September the 12th, is a public meeting on the Chile Coup in 1973, Tribute and Memory. That's at 6.30pm, Trades Hall, 54 Victoria Street, Carlton South, for more info Phone 0413-348-066, if you got that down. Organised by the Chile Solidarity Campaign and Lesnet. A lot of, uh, a lot of things to learn out of that coup. Yeah. Alright, so we're gonna to have to close up the program now. I'd like to thank all our listeners and thank all our guests, um, and stay tuned for Beyond Zero Missions, which will be up next and tune into our program next week where we'll have hopefully some great, great content lined up. Yes. Yeah, have a good morning. <laughs> This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio. Brought to you by the Green Left Weekly newspaper which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Repeats of the show and interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned into 3CR Community Radio, 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. start sometime. What better place than here?